Good morning. My name is Lauren Dolby. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Acts. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 1 through 19 from Acts chapter 9 in the New International Version. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice to, to him say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you are coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Bud Pomberg, and I need to lift this up because my eyes are as old as I am. I find our culture to be fascinating. It always has been fascinating. But I see trends that many commentators have commented on, and most of you have also commented on, and that is that we are a culture sadly divided, but also hero worshipers. Somebody is a most valuable player, or an All-American, or has the name of Russell Wilson, or Gabby Douglas, or Stephen Curry, or Kevin Durant. Are you as impressed as I am by the fact that there are so many award shows on television? 
there's award shows for everything under the sun. In fact, pretty soon there will be award shows for the best award show. This is also true in the body of Christ. We tend to be hero worshipers. Someone gains notoriety or fame, and they are quoted. They speak on any subject whatsoever, even subjects they are not qualified to speak on, and we admire them and follow them. <laughs> some, some years back, when I was still pastor here, Hal Lindsey was going to visit the congregation. He had some friends in the church. And I started getting phone calls in my office with the breathless question, is it true that Hal Lindsey is coming to Mercer Island Covenant? I said, yes, I, I guess that's true. Why is he, what time is he speaking? Well, he's not going to be speaking. He's not speaking? Then why is he coming? I became rather tired of those phone calls. So when one of them called and said, why is he coming then? I said, I guess he's heard of me. The line went dead instantly. <laughs> and someplace there in King County is someone who says, oh, that, that guy over there has some real ego problems. <laughs> Sometimes admiration borders on idolatry. But then that's true of the Bible characters and personalities too. Moses, oh wow. David, what a man. Peter, John, Paul, Mary, they're big people. Sometimes when you introduce yourself to someone and say, haven't I heard of you? They say, mm, I doubt that very much. I'm not anybody. Yes, you are. We know a comparing heart is sinful. We know that persons such as some of the Notorious people, well-known people, are only as great as the Holy Spirit who fills them and to whom they are obedient. The same Holy Spirit who desires to fill us and use us in building his kingdom. Our place of service may not have the same visibility, but God doesn't see big people and little people. He just sees his body. He sees his people. Paul was really a big man in his day. We read about his credentials in Philippians chapter 3 when he talks about circumcised the eighth day, people of the Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, zeal, blameless under the law. If you tick off those things that make a person great in that culture and that time, Ritual, relationship, respectability, race, religion, reputation, righteousness. Paul had it all. But Paul saw himself after the events on the Damascus Road, not as a big man any longer. 
He says in Philippians 3, 8, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, but I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. What happened to change a man who really was kind of an egomaniac into the kind of a man who says, what I had and counted as really important is rubbish to me now. Well, what happened was the Damascus Road experience, which Lauren read for us. What a story. Can you imagine the crowd you could get if you announced that Paul of the Damascus Road experience is going to be here tonight? On the Damascus Road, Paul learned to be aware of, to be conscious of, the body of Christ. And he needed to see himself as a part of Christ's body, the church, not a spectator, not a critic. We need that lesson today. How many people come to church? because they like the preacher, they like the choir, the seats are comfortable, it's raining outside anyway, and then meet in the parking lot or the hall and carry on a review, a critic. I heard of the father who was sitting next to his little boy and it was time for the offering and when he reached in his pocket, all he could find was nothing. He'd forgotten his money at home. And when he looked confused, the little boy looked at him and said, Hey, Dad, take my dime. I'll hide under the pew. <laughs> That's sometimes the way we approach life in the body of Christ. But Paul, on the road to Damascus, learned three valuable lessons. The first lesson he learned was to touch the followers of Jesus is to touch Jesus himself. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He wasn't even considering Jesus. He was out to get the followers of Jesus, whom Paul considered to be an unmitigated fraud anyway. He didn't have Jesus in mind at all. He wanted the followers of this man, this new cult that was threatening his religion and his church. <laughs> but Paul had to learn that to attack those who believe is to attack Christ. We're bound together. We are one body. The last judgment, according to Matthew 25, says, Whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. That's not because Jesus was a humanitarian or he felt sorry for them, but because he was in them. Why are we today to do good to all people, especially to those who are part of the family of faith? To feel good? No, but because we are part of his body.
Saul never forgot the Lord's question, why persecute me? Never again did Saul forget, or Paul forget, that the church was Christ's body. And you look at the success, the failure, the trials, the temptations, the struggles that Paul had following the Damascus Road, and you see that he never forgot that the church is the body of Christ. And it governed his relationship with the churches. People have said to me through the years, oh, what we really want is a New Testament church. I don't. They were a messed up bunch. They were messed up even more than we are sometimes. But the fact that they were part of the body of Christ governed Paul's relationship and his compassion for the confused, his love for the unlovely, his caring for the indifferent, because they were his brothers and his sisters and more, they were part of the body of Christ and you can't touch them without touching Christ. A simple illustration. When I was a youngster, my brother, who was two and a half, three years older than me, we had a burgeoning and never-ending sibling rivalry. He was better at some things and I was better at other things. And one day in a construction site next to our house, we got in some kind of a big argument and I picked up a hard clod, you know, piece of earth, and I fired it at him and I hit him. And he took off after me. He was bigger than me. There was an old truck on that property. I jumped in that truck and slammed the door. But I hadn't gotten all the way in when I shut the door. <laughs> and my feet were with the toes outside. I jerked, successfully pulling the end off of one of my toes. Well, that ended the conflict with my brother because he couldn't stand the sight of blood. So it was a, almost worthwhile, but I'll tell you this. I only lost the end of one toe. I had nine more, but I hurt all over. I got this terrible headache. I had a nauseous stomach. The only thing was, I had only damaged one toe. But that toe was part of my body. When one of you suffers or is blessed, the whole body of Christ should rejoice or share your suffering. Even when we don't agree on anything else, If you want to cause conflict, even in the church sometime, give the name of somebody. Say Obama or Donald Trump. And you see all kinds of mixed reactions. But church, we are one body in Christ. That does not mean that we are in agreement with each other all the time. What a boring thing that would be. But we are one.
and we are to behave as one. John chapter 13, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. He does not say if you agree with one another about everything. You've heard me say that the church that my wife and I served in Switzerland after we left Mercer Island, people came from 27 different countries. Some were asylum seekers who had fled for their lives. Some were world-renowned musicians and professionals. Some were very wealthy, and some were penniless sitting side by side in the body of Christ. They came from every conceivable religious background, especially Christian background. And when I came home to the States, I was struck by the fact that the body of Christ is broken up into little pieces. There is not a celebration of the oneness of Christ that there should be, that Christ expects of us. Churches are very vanilla in color. And there was something called worship wars going on when I came home. I didn't understand what in the world a worship war was. And I soon discovered that some people wanted to hold a heavy book and sing. And some wanted to do off-the-wall singing. And some people wanted to have praise music. And some people wanted to have the old hymns like Savonarola from the centuries years ago. One person said to me, it's a shame to me that we don't sing out of the hymnal. I want to sing out of the hymnal. I can't sing some of those songs. I won't sing some of those songs. And I said, he was a good friend. Shut up and sing. (laughs) The Lord doesn't care where your praise comes from, a hymnal or a wall projection. He wants our praise from our heart. You can't touch a part of the body of Christ without touching Christ. Secondly, Paul learned that to be touched by Christ was to be touched by his body. You see, in the kingdom of God, there are no lone rangers. Acts chapter 9, you will be told what you must do. Now Saul had encountered Christ, whom he had ignored. Now he had to obey, and in this instance, obedience was waiting, and it meant even waiting in the dark you will be told what to do. Why didn't Jesus just tell him? Why didn't he use somebody like Peter or one of the big VIPs? You will be told. 
Christ does not support private callings. He does not support individualism within his body. Because individualism in the body of Christ is sin. So Paul was led by his people to a house on Straight Street. And there he waited in the dark for three days. Waiting is not my virtue, I'll tell you that. Waiting in the dark is even less. Now into this drama comes a little nobody. Compared to Saul, Ananias was really nobody. He's only mentioned two times in the Bible. Once here, and then another time when Paul is giving his testimony. He refers to him. Here he is referred to as a disciple. A friend of mine with a gift of words says he didn't amount to half a hallelujah. Ananias heard from the Lord. Why? Because God wants to show his life in earthly expression in any person who belongs to him, even us. As flawed and mixed up and disagreeable and disagreeing as we sometimes can be. If you're a part of the body, if he lives in you, God wants to do his work in the hearts and lives of others through you. I used to love to stand in this congregation and look out during the singing at your faces and kind of track the chain that had taken place. There sat an engineer. Didn't have a lot to say. Brilliant man. He could talk for a, an hour on his subject, I understood three words, an engineer. But he also lived next door to a test pilot for Boeing. And through this engineer's comments and life, the test pilot for Boeing and his family became a part of the church. And then the test pilot was on his boat up in the San Juans. And he tied up next to another boat. And he met the captain and his wife of this other boat. And they wound up in this church. And then the boat's captain wound up with a door-to-door -door salesman. And they wound up in this church. If you asked any one of them if they agreed politically or if they were of equal economic status, there's nothing to tie them together except one thing. The Lord was using each one in turn to reach another in turn. I surveyed the congregation one time and asked why did you come the first time to this church? 
all kinds of answers. And then I asked, and why did you keep coming back? Of course, I expected them to say the preaching. 87% of the people I interviewed said they kept coming back because they had found Christ through somebody else. I was just a part of the furniture. You see, the body of Christ needs to function as the body of Christ. And to be touched by Christ means I'm going to touch other people. And if I am touched by Christ, I will be touched by other people. But there's a third thing Paul had to learn, and that was to serve Christ is to touch our brothers. What were the characteristics of Ananias, this nobody, that made him so useful in reaching this somebody for Christ? He had a fellowship with God that was close enough to hear. God called him Ananias, and Ananias heard him. God was not in Ananias's case. God was not an in case of emergency break glass. No compartmentalization. No secular or sacred schizophrenia that we so, see so often today in the culture of the church and the culture of our communities. And that is, oh, that's religious. That has nothing to do with this. Secondly, Ananias had a relationship that was honest enough with God to express his concern. When God called him and gave him his marching orders, Ananias said, now hold it, just a minute. Lord, I've heard of this guy. And I know he came here with John Doe warrants to arrest us. <coughs> Lord, I've heard of this guy. He was willing to go, but he wanted to make certain he was correct in hearing. And third, his commitment was real enough that once he became certain, when his doubts had been expressed and the Lord had dealt with those doubts and assured him, Ananias threw off the covers and pulled on his britches and ran down the street to Straight Street. I wonder what was on his mind. The closer he got to the location where Paul was, I wonder what he was thinking. Was I mistaken? Did I really hear God? Did he really want me to go? Now that little church in Damascus had been praying. They had heard Saul was coming. There were a lot of asylum seekers in that church. Asylum seekers who had fled from Jerusalem and had gone as far as Damascus. They knew the conditions under which Saul was coming and they were probably praying like we would have been. Oh Lord. Stop him. Protect us. Cover us with your grace and protect us. But I wonder how many in that little church in Damascus were praying, Lord, save him. Bring him to the knowledge of yourself. Help him to know your grace. 
What would I have been praying? And now Ananias, faster and faster, moves down the street until Ananias the unknown races toward the place of the famous VIP, the feared, the persecutor of the church. And he enters the house on the street called straight, his hopes and his fears all mixed up, his doubts returning. Was this just some crazy stuff going on? Am I putting myself in peril? And then he sees Saul in his blindness in the pre-dawn gloom on his knees and praying. And then look at verse 17. Placing his hands on Saul, Ananias said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, from a non-Christian view, that's really pretty stupid. But when you understand that Ananias knew he was part of the body of Christ and his mission was to remind him and teach him that this fledgling persecutor, freshly committed, was his brother. We are one in the bonds of love. That's body consciousness. We don't get to choose. Christ does that. Look at your family. Most of us had a rather, have a rather strange uncle and an odd aunt, but they're part of the family. You may not play golf with them. You may not get in a Scrabble game with them. But they're part of your family. When I stood in the delivery room with my son and then later with my daughter, Doc Stewart handed this bloody little baby to me. He did not hand me a handbook on you need to love this child. The nurse did get, not give me instructions and say, now, remember, but you've got to love this child. I already did. I loved that child before that child was in my arms. I loved that child from the day we learned he was on his way and she was on her way. Because they were part of the body, part of my body, a part of Donna's body. Now, the lesson for us today is to serve Christ is to touch our brothers and sisters, even the hostile and hurting or the helpless and the hopeless and the hateful and the hungry and the rootless and the restless and the judgmental and the jealous. Love them all. Love them all. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. I imagine that probably 85% of you here today, if we got in a discussion on our favorite baseball team, player, football team, politician, status of a bill, <laughs> we could wind up in a rather heated disagreement. 
But that doesn't change the fact that we are part of the same family. Part of the same family. That's remarkable to me. Some years ago, a man who was an official of his party in the state of Washington, and a man who was a high-ranked member of the state legislature, was from the other party. Both of these men, one of them was visiting the first time he was in this church. I stood right back there by the door getting acquainted with the man, and he looked over my shoulder and saw the other man approaching the church. And he said, does that guy go to the church? I said, yeah, yeah, he does. Do you know what my job is? I said, I have no idea what your job is. My job is to get that guy out of Olympia. And I said, oh, really? About that time, that guy walked in. And I reached out, and I took a hold of his arm, and I said, come here. So-and-so is visiting our church today, and I guess he knows you, or at least he knows of you, and maybe you know of him. And they looked at each other kind of, well, you can imagine. And then I said, well, church is about ready to start. It'd probably be good for you two fellas if you sat next to each other. <laughs> and they looked like I had condemned them. Sometime later, I was invited to Olympia because of the investiture of one of these people in its high office. And guess who showed up for the private celebration? The man whose goal and profession was to get that guy out of office. He came to celebrate. And when members of the other man's party saw him, they said, what are you doing here? And he said, he's my brother. Now, if that can happen in Olympia, it might even happy, happen in Washington. But that's not my responsibility. I want it to happen here, where we know each other, we differ with each other, we celebrate each other, and we love our Lord together. By this shall all men know all men, those within the church, and that includes women, of course, those within the church and those outside, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I long to hear people say of the Evergreen Covenant Church, those strange people, they really love on each other, but they don't agree with about much. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. Lord, 
we sometimes pay a lot of attention to the Ten Commandments, and so we should. And we forget that there are eleven. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, so you should love each other. This way all men will know that you are my disciples. Help us in our weakness. Help us to celebrate our oneness through Christ our Lord. Amen.